Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. So welcome to Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen. And today we are going to talk about the topic of risk assessment, which both of us think is very crucial to any discussion about sex and sexuality with teens. So Lynn, you're one of the developers of the idea of risk taking. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Um, perhaps uh, where most of my early work uh, began was with uh, the process of healthy risk assessment. And uh, this brings up the whole topic of teens are in general known for negative risk assessment and dangerous risk assessment and scary risk assessment. And uh, the teens I work with get scared even about the process of taking risk. And parents are very frightened of risk taking. But um, in years ago, I don't want to say how many decades, but years ago, I, I began to see that risk taking was a process that young people engage in that has the potential for negative consequences or positive. And there's a reason that adolescents are prone to taking risk and they take more risk than adults. And uh, that is because, you know, uh, certainly we now know it's part of their brain and part of their genetic makeup. And, but it's also something that pushes the whole species forward. Um, that we, uh, as younger people, take risk and we can do it in a healthy way where we assess them carefully, we make good choices, and they really benefit uh, ourselves as young people and also all of humanity. So the idea that uh, a teenager would engage in a healthy risk uh, process and do something very positive is important. Um, you must have patients, Jennifer, that have engaged in healthy risk-taking and have taken on risk and challenge in a very healthy way. Absolutely. I mean, I think before I even get into that is hmm. to talk about how, for me, encountering this frame was such a life-changing moment because mm. I was so used to hearing about teens and it coming from this very negative, you know, we need to control teens. We need to prepare them for the dangers. And it didn't really look at how there can be the positive aspects. And one of the things I think you mentioned was, you know, how there are different activities that teens engage in. A big one is my teens are often involved in some kind of sport. And I think that's a huge area where teens are constantly taking small risks, but it helps them build their identity. It helps them build their self-esteem. And I think that seeing that as kind of part of the spectrum of risk-taking rather as something completely separate is really powerful. I, th I think you bring up how do you come up with an idea such as healthy risk-taking and because we're so mired down in our country, the United States, and dangerous risk-taking. And for me, I was working with uh, other researchers at uh, the University of California, Charlie Irwin uh, and Nancy Adler, and had exposure to a lot of work uh, around risk-taking. But I think it was actually being the parent of uh, kids that really helped me see the healthy aspects of it and the complexity of risk-taking. Mm -hmm. And certainly the patients I work with, I also see that. But being a parent is really a possibility for looking at a lot of healthy risk-taking with your young person. And it's so important. Um, so that part can't be neglected when we look at sex and we, when we look at the combination of sex and risk-taking. Absolutely. And what that brings up for me is this idea of kind of what I see with a lot of the parents coming in is there is a lot of fear. And I hear a lot of kids talking about how they're worried about their parents' judgment or they feel like they're in a cage almost and that they have no room in which to do anything. And, you know, that may be somewhat of a hyperbole, but at the same time, there is that sense of being constrained, of not having any room. And I think to be able to help parents and teens negotiate some 
kind of balance between the healthy risk taking and also being able to manage the unhealthy risks that they might engage in is really important. One of the earlier studies uh, that was done probably about 40 years ago showed that parents when they look back at their own risk-taking, view it in a more negative light than it actually was taking place. So it brings up, I think, the idea that uh, adults are not the best judge of teen risk-taking. And they've got a kind of uh, danger-prone perspective looking at it. And they also tend to not want to disclose their own risk-taking, and they fail to see the benefits of risk-taking. So they're really not able to guide their kids in the way that they could be. So I think reshaping our perspective to see risk-taking as a complex venture with healthy and dangerous aspects of it is very important. And what you said about the cage, a lot of the kids I work with feel that way too, that their parents and the culture has them in a cage they can't get out of. Yeah. And so that actually brings up for me the idea of this article that you showed to me recently. I think it came from two days ago from the New York Times, right? <laughs> We're trying to stay with the current issues. And it was it was exciting to see an article about an op-ed piece, actually, in the New York Times. And uh, uh, this is uh, the month of uh, uh, September 2016 to see an op-ed piece about risk-taking in the New York Times Teen risk-taking is always interesting. Absolutely. And so I figure maybe if we spend some time talking about it, that would be helpful. So first to let um, any listeners know, the article that we're talking about is titled, Can Teenage Defiance Be Manipulated for Good? And it was written by Amanda Ripley. And so... You know, there were some issues that I had with it. For example, this kind of clickbaity title about how, you know, teens are defiant and how we can manipulate them. Maybe we can start even just talking about that first before we get into the article. What do you think about the use of those words? Well, even the word manipulation and Amanda Ripley, to give her her credit for her fine work, she has a book about uh, the smartest children in the world and, uh, you know, it's really, I think, devoted to working with young people. But you don't always choose your titles in the op-eds at the New York Times and other places. I know that. And uh, the idea of putting manipulation in there brings up a word that scares teenagers. They feel like adults are trying to manipulate and control them. And even being controlled for good versus evil or risk, dangerous risk, that is, um, is, is not a good thing. Manipulation is something that scares everyone. Definitely. I mean, I think it's one of those scary words, and it's unfortunate because it doesn't acknowledge the fact that instead of looking at it in terms of teens being manipulated, how can you collaborate? You don't want to coerce them. You want to collaborate with them, and you want to show them what are their choices and help them learn to make better choices for themselves. And I think that's a lot of what we talk about. And then the other thing for me was that the word defiance is a very negative word as well. But if you look at the flip side of defiance, what it's really about is kind of escaping that cage and finding a sense of autonomy. And I think it's very interesting. You know, as you said, she didn't choose this title, but I think it's very reflective of how we as a society look at teens and risk-taking. And and that's very important, Jennifer. It's hard to get away from the negative aspects and the scary aspects of risk-taking. Um, one of the interesting things about this paper is it talks about some some newer research and ideas and the fact that young people, as we've always known, want to rebel against older ideas. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of the boomer generation, and I think our generation was known for saying things like never trust a person over 30, and now we're double 30. We've really got <laughs> troubles here. Uh-huh. But uh, I think the idea that uh, young people will come up with new ideas, they're receptive to change, and they'll take on risks both in the sexual area and other areas that adults won't. And that's a very important thing to show that receptivity. Also, 
they want to push the envelope with the adults. So I don't know if I'd even call it rebellion. I think about it, is they're willing to push change in yes. a way that older people are not. And so that's the concept that this research comes out of, is that you've got a group that's really poised to take risk and to make changes and to push the envelope a bit further. And that's not necessarily a negative thing. Right. You know, so it's really how do we partner with our young people so that they can have the best process, you know, engaging in this type of risk taking that anyone could have. And it's really a different attitude you and I are talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for one, that idea that we're partnering with them, right, in a way that implies that we see them as equals. And I definitely hear from parents and from teens a lot of the times neither party feels that that is the right way in which to do things. And so being able to work together and collaborate, I think, and seeing that as a positive and being able to see the change as a reflection of wanting things to be better mm -hmm. instead of just wanting to manipulate, wanting to change in a negative direction. It's really looking at how can we look at this change in a way that's going to make a difference and I think teens, for their part, are very much influenced by their peers as well. And instead of seeing that as kind of a threat, it's how can we work together so that they have something that's personal to them. I think that makes a big difference. Everybody wants to have a purpose, and having that purpose helps you in building your identity as well. Right. And risk-taking as you point out, is one of our major tools for developing our identity, both as adults and as teenagers. This, uh, the op-ed piece also referred to uh, a work around um, diet, and it showed that teenagers are prone, more prone, to eating in a healthy way than adults if it's presented, the data is presented to them in a certain way. I think that's true, that teenagers will push the envelope, they will take changes, they will do things in a positive direction that adults don't, don't necessarily do because we've learned these unhealthy patterns, really. So it's a really interesting idea. It's just important to focus on the positive parts of this. Right. And that brings up in the article, there was another mention of another com campaign, and it was the Truth Campaign. I don't remember. Do you remember anything about that? I remember being a teen around the age that that came out and just how powerful that was. Truth is, it's an interesting aspect how it's used with teens, because one of the uh, early pieces of research around risk-taking was that uh, the Reagan-promoted campaign uh, about teen risk-taking, which was Just Say No. It's kind of associated with Nancy Reagan, but I'm not even so sure how much she had to do with it. But uh, that idea was so limiting that teenagers immediately suspected that they were being manipulated by that idea of Just Say No. So I think with teenagers, you have to actually work with them so that they can see the complexity of risk. You can't just say, just do this, just do that. And so many parents do that around risky areas. Right. And that puts teens off. You really have to give them the data. You have to let them make the choices. And what you keep saying, you have to partner with them and say, we're going to work together and try to figure this out. And that's so important. And I think along those lines is the idea that you're not taking over, right? What was powerful to me about the truth campaign, which for those who don't know, was about smoking and not smoking. And instead of the idea of smoking being cool, what truth did was they, excuse me, they took a look at what is, what are the statistics? And the, the truth campaign that was mentioned in this article was from the early 2000s. And what happened was that it was a group of young people on on the screen and they were piling up these body bags of the people who to show people who had died from smoking. And this was being done outside of corporate headquarters for the tobacco companies. And you had a youth on a megaphone kind of yelling against the sins of the tobacco companies. And so it was a very different way of looking at 
a smoking campaign and how to get kids to not smoke. So instead of kind of focusing on just the like, well, you won't be cool, it was really kind of giving them a shared enemy, for lack of a better word, but something to rally around perhaps is a better, a more positive spin on that. But I think youth very much can come together when they see that there is some kind of injustice happening. They're very focused on justice. And and this brings us back to that op-ed, which really talked about youth will, wants to change the world. That was the other part of the boomer generation, your generation, and then generations to come. Yes. They want to make positive differences. Risk-taking allows them to do that. It's a mechanism for change. And, uh, you know, what you describe, I remember those ads, and they meant a lot to me to look at them. But for young people, I'm sure they resonated completely. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh, that campaign was a response to the Reagan years where they had very limited way of looking at things. But I think partnering with young people in healthy activities where they save humanity and they help humanity is something that they could really get behind, you know. Um, there is some research that indicates that um, during terrible earthquakes worldwide, that teens are one of the first groups to come out to try to save other people. Mm-hmm. They'll make a lot of effort. And you see this as we watch uh, you know, TV and media worldwide. The teens are there in these earthquake regions, and they're really involved. And it brings them out of themselves, and it gives them purpose. And uh, it provides this type of healthy, healthy risk-taking that we're talking about. And that brings up for me, too, that it's often... Teens are able to rally together when they're not just thinking about themselves, which I think is one of the ideas that culture has kind of promoted is like teens are so self-centered, they're always thinking about themselves. But teens are very much concerned about other people too. And they want to, as you said, they want to make a change. They want to make a difference. And that involves caring about other people. Uh, For uh, years, I was the disaster chair uh, for the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the chair of their committee. And in that position, I went all over the world and work with uh, disaster situations. And there you saw easily the teens enjoyed, came forward. They wanted to be involved in the Midwest floods. They wanted to have a role there. They really want to make differences. And I agree with you, Jennifer. I really think the idea that teens are self-preoccupied and they're alone and they're with their media, you know, that takes away from a huge part of young people's really goals and life opportunities. Yeah. So I think one of the things maybe to bring up too, because I thought it was so powerful, was that in the article, they were talking about one of the teens who mentioned kind of that they were working on this project. And in the beginning, they really believed that they wouldn't make much impact. And so I think if we collaborate with teens and help them see that we want, we don't have to coerce them or manipulate them, but really want, we want to help them further what it is that they're interested in, as long as it's like a healthy path, then I think hopefully they can believe that they can have an impact. And then they once a teen feels that they can have an impact, I see them really push that forward. Teens, more than any group, I think, are able to come together in a very powerful way and push forward that change as long as they believe that it matters. I agree with you. And it's just showing them opportunities and partnering with them. I think one of our goals is to have teens on these podcasts and talk with them about sexuality. Yeah. A little hard to do in our world that protects teens from talking about these things. But uh, we really like to set that up and have a more open exchange. Um, there's a site called Sex Etc., mm-hmm. which is a, a teen-friendly uh, site that really opens up. It's out of Rutgers University and opens up a lot of opportunity for teens and sexual matters. But we want teens involved, uh, you know, in this process too. So along those lines, maybe being able to talk about, you know, we use the word partnering a lot, but for a lot of parents that come in, I see that they don't, they know in a sense that they need to partner with their teen, but they're not necessarily certain how to make that happen. And teens as well, 
they're, they have kind of, well, I want to share, but I also don't want to share. What are some guidelines that you have around being able to help parents and teens navigate the area of risk taking and risk assessment? Well, I think most important is for parents to re- recognize that healthy risk taking is uh, one of the greatest positive tools in a teenager's life. And parents have to, instead of be afraid of risk-taking, to really admire it, see the positive aspects of it, encourage and promote it, which is a a big shift in thinking. So it means that parents have to get kids involved in sports, and parents have to support uh, interest in the media, and parents have to support writing poetry or online blogs. You know, there's so many opportunities to take risk in the world, but it's really thinking about it differently. And I also believe that positive risk-taking is somewhat protective against the dangerous aspects of dangerous risk-taking, also known as risk behaviors, where you get patterns of dangerous risk-taking. These are the things parents are so afraid of, substance abuse and self-mutilation and scares everybody. And, And in the sexual zone, you have unprotected sexual intercourse. You have a lot of sexual risks that parents may not even know about, but mm-hmm. they're afraid about. So this whole area of reshifting thinking for parents from the dangerous risk-taking to the healthy risk-taking is really vital. So what I'm hearing you say kind of to summarize that too is really being able to start seeing risk-taking along a spectrum. Instead of it being just risk is a negative thing, it's really looking at how is my child taking risks and are there things that are positive coming from this and being able to kind of focus on that and kind of grow that as a protective factor against some of those negative risks. Exactly. And you mentioned the spectrum of risk taking itself, but it's also something we do through our entire lives. And in the book, Romance of Risk, that I wrote about it, you know, the young people engage in risk and then it continues through our lives. And we want to start a pattern of healthy risk taking. Many parents have come to me and said, I don't have a good pattern of risk taking. I'm risk adverse. I don't want to engage in risk. So how can I help my two teens, you know, really engage in a healthy risk taking pattern when I'm so afraid of it? And so you've got parents that are afraid of it and you've got parents that are engaged kind of counterphobically and a lot of unhealthy risk. Mm-hmm. And kids watch our risk taking patterns. And we have risk-taking patterns throughout our lives. So we're still taking risks. For you and me, Jen, starting a podcast was like, Oh, yeah, this is a huge (laughs) risk. Yeah. It's like a big risk right here. But it's something that's kind of fun. And uh, it's allowed us to think about all these things differently. And I think it's a natural venue, really, for sexuality. Absolutely. To talk about it conversationally and help the world learn how to do this. So today we're mostly focusing on the risk part of it. Right. Yeah. The other thing um, is with children, parents have to know that kids give you clues about how they take risk. So um, even starting out with very little children, I've spent a lot of time recently with a very young baby and this little baby's giving me a lot of clues already about how he takes risk. Yeah. And uh, he's a little risk adverse, and but he, he likes to do other things. He loves verbal risk taking. He makes lots of noises and has enjoys that, but he's afraid to kind of reach away from his body and try things in other areas. And this starts so early, so moms and dads have to be cued into it. Yeah, and I think one of the things I want to highlight about what you said is really that somebody can be very risk-taking in a certain arena and that in a whole other arena, they may be very risk-averse. So to note that, you know, it's not like you have one risk-taking profile. It's really about how do you take risks in certain arenas of your life and that it's not just, you know, the same across the board. I think one of the concerns about the current generation of teens is they're very experienced. They're avatars of the internet. But in the social arena, they're not taking the type of face-to-face risks that they need to. 
And this is something we're going to explore more in our podcast because we, we, you and I have questions about this. Absolutely. But it demonstrates, I think, some of the problems and imbalance of risk taking can leave you in one part of your life very advanced and in another very behind. So you also want to work to balance that out. You know, and I encourage uh, parents who have kids who aren't social to really get them involved in social groups, to encourage family parties, to really converse with them at least a couple times a day. You know, all of that's important. And I think, too, for kids who are more risk adverse, they are more comfortable in smaller groups. And so a lot of times kids will be kind of pushed into these huge group activities where they immediately withdraw because it's just so overwhelming. But instead, if you were to say, you know, have a play date if they're young or just, you know, get together with some friends and it's maybe one or two kids, sometimes that allows a child to go outside of their comfort zone in a way that doesn't feel as threatening. So I think part of risk that we haven't brought up is... The way I look at risk-taking is kind of the difference between being in your comfort zone and being in what I call your capacity zone. And so risk-taking allows you to expand your comfort zone, which is some of what we're doing here with, you know, the podcasting is this is not something that's familiar to me, but it's somewhere that I want to grow. It's somewhere I want to expand. And so to understand that part of risk-taking is being uncomfortable but being able to recognize the difference between being uncomfortable and being in a painful situation. Because I think that's something I see a lot of parents guarding against is, well, that might be painful for my child, so I don't want to let them do that. Or there are these dangers. I think, you know, being able to shift that frame into kind of what we're talking about. So how can this help them grow their capacity They have to be able to be uncomfortable sometimes, both parents and children, in order to do that. That's just a key point to raising kids. Uh, You don't want, you want to protect your kids so they make it through the teen years. Right. But you also want them to experience difficult and challenging things. And you have to encourage them to do that. They don't want to jump into the water. You know, they're standing, you know, on the shore and, you know, often you've really got to promote them, show them it can be done, but more important, show them they can do it. And that's the key and have faith in them. You know, I often think the great thing about being a parent is you've got to look down the road. You've got to anticipate the risks down the road, both dangerous and positive, and you've got to promote them and encourage them to go there. And that's such an important aspect uh, that a lot of parents, their fear stops them really from going forward in that way. And that actually reminds me of a great story, a personal story, which may seem a little bit unrelated, but it's related in terms of risk is when I was a kid, my mom would kind of sign me up for a lot of summer camps. And they were things that weren't necessarily very comfortable for me. But because of that, I realize now that I am more comfortable taking risks. I mean, I've jumped out of trees and I was terrified of heights. You know, I took a public speaking class at Berkeley and I was terrified of public speaking. And so in a way, I do remember being a little frustrated with my parents at that time and being like, why am I in this situation? And yet looking back now, I'm able to see like, wow, that's fantastic. She believed in me. She knew I could do it. I had her support. And so she put me in a situation that she knew would help me grow. And that's why you're able to do all these things today. You encouraged me to do the podcast, Jennifer. And I think that's a, a really, that's part of your personality now. Um, I grew up in a culture, um, my dad being part Native American took my brother and I out hiking and in the national parks and doing a lot of outdoor risk taking. And it was not usual for girls in my generation to have that opportunity. I learned to swim outdoors and, uh, lifted weights and did a lot of things girls don't do. And, uh, but that really helped me take risk in other areas. So I I was able to take the physical risk-taking that I'd done and then say, well, I could probably go to medical school with the guys if I could lift weights with them, you know, and really make it a different kind of experience. So I think risk-taking has many, many 
uh, amplifications that parents do not realize. Um, maybe to think about um, what kind of questions parents can talk about with their kids too around risk taking because you know how do you bring this up you maybe talk a little about your own background of risk as we're talking about but I think some of the questions you can ask is really start to talk to kids about how they make choices um, I think the whole area of peers is an interesting one because uh, there is a, a theory and there are a couple of books that say it's entirely peers and parents have nothing to do with it in terms of risk-taking and kids. But the actual studies show that parents impact in some areas of risk-taking and that peers impact in other areas of risk-taking. And for example, with uh, sexuality, online sexual risk-taking is affected by peers you know, have sites there. They may have uh, mm -hmm. their own little sexual sites and kids see that and they're drawn to that. But there's also a lot of adults online doing all kinds of sexual things which affect kids. So that's an example of both peers and, you know, adults. But you might begin by asking questions about peers. What kind of risk are your friends involved with? How do you feel about that? Would you be willing to do that? So you develop the conversational capacity to talk about risk-taking and risk assessment with your kids. I agree with that. And I think what's interesting, too, is if you can take this frame about the spectrum, that risk doesn't have to be this negative thing, then you can have these conversations about risk. I think what happens is if the conversation that you have around risk is only negative, it's very easy for teens to kind of tune that out and say, well, you're only talking about the negative things. So you don't really understand my situation. You don't understand my life. You know, those are things that teens say. And it's really about if you can have the conversation and say, oh, that was a great thing that you did in that aspect. Oh, well, what about, you know, how do you feel about that choice your friend made? And to really help them see it in that spectrum, then I think they want to talk to you because they don't feel like you're just saying, don't do this, don't do that. It's really a discussion. And you, Brant, brought up earlier how you have to feel uncomfortable a bit to take risk. I think you also have to be willing to make mistakes. Oh, yes. And to acknowledge mistakes. And our culture puts so much pressure on our kids not to make mistakes. And we learn so much from our mistakes. I think that way, you know, if parents could talk more about, I've learned a lot from my mistakes. That's how I grow. That's part of risk taking. Then that's another part of the conversation that would give permission to kids and it wouldn't be so judgmental. And that's such a crucial thing. I'm glad you mentioned that because I see that so often. It's, well, I can't do that because what if I fail? And it's sort of learning to see failure as a part of the process and that really the only way you fail is if you're not even trying at all. And when it comes to sex, a lot of teenagers, uh, both boys and girls, are afraid of, uh, you know, sexual activity because they are afraid they're going to fail. Mm -hmm. They have some construct that it's got to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it has a, a lot of negative implications. I've worked with boys who initiate sexual intercourse, let's say, with a girlfriend. And uh, it's a negative experience because the boy is holding on rigidly to some idea of sex that he's come up with. Yeah. And he's not willing to admit that it's not quite going the way that the girl, his partner, might want it to go. Yeah. And uh, it's true with, uh, you know, gay youth. There's a lot of experimentation going on there. But even there, there's more some rigidity and some patterning and some thinking, I've got to have it go this way sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think realizing that it is experimental and there are a lot of options and that we take the different choices we make and we move in directions and we can make mistakes. It's okay. I think that's the big thing is sending that message of it's okay. And also helping people to, I don't know if amend is the right word, but to move on from their mistakes, right? To be able to say, well, what did you learn from that experience? And what I see is a lot of people panic at that moment. And instead of it being able to be a learning experience, 
it becomes an experience of just like, well, that was horrible. I don't ever want it to happen again. And I'm just never going to do that. And that's not what you want to gain from those experiences. And you bring up uh, even that can lead into role play. Yeah. Where with kids, you you know, two kids together, big sister, big brother, parents can say, let's play this out. Let's see how it would be. You know, if you're on that date, what's it going to be like? If you're, you're hooking up and you're at that party and everybody else is in the corner and the lights are off, what are you going to do? Yeah. And uh, really role-playing some of these things I think is so helpful to teenagers. You know, and it gives them some distance Mm -hmm. so they can think about it ahead of time. Mm -hmm. You can talk about what other kids might do, how you might help your friends with this, all of that. And I think what's crucial there is that opens up a dialogue where you can talk not just about the teen's experience, but like... teens often worry about, as we talked about, the peer group, right? So you might talk about, it's very easy to focus on, well, you should do this and you should do that. But instead, the teen might be thinking, well, if I do this, then my friend isn't going to be my friend anymore, or they're going to think I'm uncool, or, you know, all the other things that pass through their head. And if you're not role-playing, then you may not kind of hear all of that coming up. And I think the other idea behind role-playing, which is really crucial is you get to prepare someone. So then they have a plan that they can kind of fall to instead of being in a situation and just having to rely on whatever it is they come up with in that moment. And your words, you know, the teen saying, they're not going to be my friend anymore. That is one of the biggest fears I think the teens have. Oh, yeah. uh, About risk taking and their lives in general. And they will engage in risks that they might not otherwise have done just to keep the friendships going. Yes. And so that has to be talked about, I think, at home. And parents can use their own ideas when they've been led because they're worried about losing somebody's good feelings and what that means. And uh, that's such an important part of both healthy risk-taking and dangerous and I think that's great to point out is it can go either way, right? It It's not a clear-cut situation. So to be able to help your teen navigate such an idea, how can you move that in a more healthy frame? How can you turn that into a healthy form of risk-taking? Another thing that that brings up for me is this idea of when it comes to the sexual arena, you really need to be able to use your voice. And if you're not knowing how to use your voice among your peers in general, how could you possibly navigate having those sexual conversations? Right. That's one of, I think, the biggest problems with sex is uh, for teens in our culture, they haven't learned how to talk about these things. They really don't have any capacity to say what they want. Um, they maybe can say no, but, you know, there's a focus now, I think, on teaching teens how to say yes. What's the way to say yes about sexual activity? And I think that's good. I think that's helpful. But you have to practice these conversations. You really do. Whether you're practicing them in front of the mirror at home, you're practicing with your parent, you're practicing them with your friends, Online is also a place where there's a lot of practicing going on. And I think that's actually what a lot of the online community is for a lot of these teens, is trying on new identities without having to be stuck in them in a way that maybe you would be if you did some of these actions at school. Yeah. brings up that fine line, because online, uh, you know, there's the area where we have known a small group of older people lying about their ages being teenagers in chat rooms and doing things with young people that we don't want to happen and yet teens themselves often lie a year or two about their identity online Mm -hmm. they construct their profile to be a certain way and I think we all do that as human beings but there are risks inherent in that process Right. And I think what we're trying to model here, too, is that you can talk about these things instead of just being, don't go online, don't do these things, right? You shouldn't do these things. It's, well, okay, how do you talk about, well, what's making you want to do those things? How do you talk about the social pressures? How do you talk about the things that are really going on in a teen's life? And it's really not talking at, right? Lecturing, it's educating, it's sharing, it's, again, that collaboration. It's giving them a chance to use their voice with you, I think, also helps them use their voice in the world. Yeah. 
and along the lines of the online suggesting that they might share their profile. You talk about aspects of it, even beginning a conversation. Yeah. Parents will find teens are more willing to say, well, let's look. I'll show you what's going on. Mm-hmm. And let your teen lead you there. And this gets with how uh, gets to how parents and teens talk about risk taking. Teens can help parents take risks, as you helped me take these podcasts here, and and parents help teens. You know, it's really a mutual, cooperative venture. You know, that's what we're talking about—the idea of the partnership and right. risk taking, and that it can be positive. Yes. Very positive. And of course, there is the dangerous aspect of risk taking. We have to be attentive to that. But there's been so much conversation about that that we should focus. And I think we'd like to focus on the healthier aspects of it. Well, I think maybe along those lines, you know, I definitely agree. Our goal is to help people see risk as potentially being more positive. It might be helpful to address some of those myths that we have about risk taking. You know, one of the things, one of the statistics I found so interesting was that one in five of teens is actually engaged in truly dangerous behaviors, whereas, you know, society, media tends to present things as, well, most adolescents are engaged in these dangerous risk-taking behaviors. And I think that's really important to address. That was uh, fortunately something that came out of the work I would say even in the 70s, that really showed that it was a small number, you know, of uh, teens who were engaged in the truly dangerous work. And there's, uh, you know, work done by Dr. Offer in Chicago that really looked at that. And a very important idea, I think, for parents to recognize. So if you have five children, four of them are going to be engaged in patterns of healthy risk-taking. And it's really how do you recognize the one that's stuck in a pattern of dangerous risk behavior and how do you provide opportunities for them to move out of it. But uh, I think that myth helps a lot to to understand that. And uh, I think the other myth that uh, here in America we have to pay attention to is we are, um, uh, there's a belief that we're so good at risk-taking in America and we are, uh, we're a risk-taking country. uh, we're a country really built of we're risk takers. We're built on it, yeah. Know? And we're proud of it. But we're not so good in the area of risk assessment. And we're not so good in the area of recognizing our mistakes. And uh, so we lag behind there. And uh, Europe, actually European countries, have much healthier profiles of risk-taking and risk assessment than the United States. So this is important, I think, for everyone to know in the U.S. that our teens are growing up in a culture that has a lot of risk-taking, but not a lot of risk assessment demonstrated in a healthy way. So how do we help our kids with that? It's a really powerful question. And I think it really starts with being able to see that risk can be healthy, right? Because I, for me, part of the thinking is that if you have that sort of caged in feeling about risk, that you need to guard against it, that you need to protect against it, and in all forms, not just dangerous forms, right? Because obviously we need to protect against dangerous forms. But if we need to have this sort of cage-like mentality, then you don't have room to do the risk assessing because none of the risk is happening. Well, it's such an important point when you're talking about the the cage and the parents keeping the kids in the cage. It's both ways. Oh, absolutely. The kid feels caged by the tight frame and the parent wants to reduce the possibility of danger. So you've really got an environment where there's not going to be a positive exchange because it's there, the lid is really on it. Instead of the lid needs to come off of risk taking yeah. and it needs to be a process that everyone is looking at and is engaged in. You know, the idea of transparency is very big in our political world right now. Uh-huh. And uh, I think more transparency has to be available both in the area of sexuality and risk taking. Yeah, and actually what that brings up for me is that I think one of the things parents are worried about is that their teens won't see them. If they share about 
dangerous things they've done in the past or that, you know, maybe they haven't had the healthiest patterns of risk taking. They're afraid of how their teen will view them. And I think instead, teens often value that because they worry that their parents cannot understand their perspective, their lives, because, well, my parents in some ways perfect, and therefore, how could they possibly understand what I'm going through? And it's a tricky area. I work with a lot of parents of teens and um, around this area. How much do you share of yeah. your own dangerous risk-taking or even positive risk-taking? Um, but I think it's the dangerous parents hold back about. Um, I think it has to be thought about carefully. Um, I work with one mother who had had an abortion uh, when she was um, a teenager, and then her daughter was facing that same task. And um, she wanted to bring up the abortion that she had experienced and her whole process through it and share it uh, with her daughter. Um, And finally, she did do that with guidance. We worked on that. But the daughter had... um, had never gave the daughter the opportunity to think about there was a the potential for a child that had never happened and it was really a kind of a, a different and new experience for the child at that time the teen who was going through it so it turned out that it may not have been the best time for this parent to share this information mm-hmm. you know but I think often you don't know that, and uh, the mother and daughter work through this. Right. They figured out their separate paths around this, but it's uh, it's complicated when you start sharing some of the risk-taking, so I think you think about it carefully, and you come up with a couple of things you can share with your kids. One, I think it's important to share a few mistakes mm-hmm. in the risk-taking arena to show you're not perfect. Mm-hmm. Second, to uh, share how much healthy risk-taking has helped you. Yeah. That everybody in their lives have done things that have pushed the envelope a bit, as you were talking about earlier. And uh, that's so important, I think, to share some of those things. And to share that you want your teen as a parent, you want your teen to really progress Uh, on the path of healthy risk-taking. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the stories that comes up around that is my mom has been a really positive role model in the sense that she was a woman in a very male-dominant field, much like yourself. And I think that really showed me that it could be done. At the very Mm -hmm. least, it could be done. Mm -hmm. And so that is an area where I look at her risk taking. And when I was younger, I didn't realize what a huge risk that was. But now as I myself am moving in the professional field, I see how much of a risk that was. And she moved here from Taiwan Mm -hmm. at the age of 20 something. And I just imagine like, what would that be like for me to go move somewhere where I don't know people and I don't speak the language that well? And I see how much her pattern of risk taking, her willingness, her willingness to take those positive risks have formulated my beliefs around risk and that risk can be a very positive thing. And we haven't talked about it yet, but immigration mm-hmm. and immigrants like your mother and our country is filled with immigrants. Yeah. That is a huge risk to engage in. Yeah. And many, many people take that immigration risk when they're teenagers. Right. Your mother did in her 20s, but they're young people. They engage in that, and they take on that challenge. It's a huge risk, and it helped you be willing to take other risks. We're not leaving for a different country. Right. But there are different risk profiles involved in that, really. I I think within our cultures, you mentioned your mom's Taiwanese culture, and uh um, my dad being part French-Canadian and Native American, that's a, a combined risk-taking culture where mm. um, two populations, you know, the Natives and uh, the French-Canadian people, really engaged in risk-taking together. They partnered. Mm-hmm. And um, it is it really helped me, I think, see risk-taking in a more complex way. But all of us have a cultural background where we have a different perspective on risk-taking. And there, we have risk-taking in our background, and we need to look toward that. You know, I've worked with Scandinavian kids who've looked to the Norsemen, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, for patterns of myth and risk-taking. And uh, there's many exciting stories. And our, our myths, you know, African yes. kids who come out of Africa, the myths talk about risk in yes. all of our culture. So they offer, I think, different opportunities and really different ways of looking at it culturally. And I think that brings us back around to kind of where you started this with is if you look at a lot of American myths, though, they talk about risk, they highlight risk, and sometimes in positive ways, but they don't talk about the risk assessment piece. And so it's really just, you know, there's a lot of risky kind of actions or behaviors, but you're not looking at what risk actually looks like in our lives is you need to engage in risk, but you also need to be able to assess that risk. One of the countries that's done the best job with uh, risk assessment and integration is Canada. And it had a whole program years ago called Cool Risk, Hmm. where it showed on television a young person, let's say, at a quarry standing up on a a potential diving board and jump, being getting ready to jump, and it spends several minutes with him thinking about his thoughts before he jumps ah. off, and he assesses risk and takes it in different direction. And I think the idea that thinking about risk is cool, yeah. it's really an interesting and fun thing to do, and you've got to spend time doing it rather than the quick jump you know, off the board right. into maybe a quarry that isn't deep enough. And, right. You know, there's the injury. And, uh, you know, but it's really important to make the assessment mm. process a cool process, too. Yeah. And Canada's great at that. And uh, other countries, you know, have really shown in a way that the U.S. hasn't. Um, I think about we're close to election time in 2016, and you mentioned your mother, and we have a role model of Hillary Clinton taking the risk and running for president uh, 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 as uh, really a leader of a major party. And uh, that is uh, amazing to watch. Um, You know, there's certainly attack you know, related to all kinds of things uh, of uh, Hillary Clinton, but she is taking a risk. And people in this country, women and girls in my office, they are watching. They are watching. You know, and uh, this week she suffered a little bit with pneumonia, but, uh, you know, there are the downsides to risk-taking. It does take it out of you. You know, it is a challenge, and there are parts of it that make it very difficult. And I think along those lines, what you're bringing up about kind of how risk is managed by other people, that's an important thing to talk with teens about too, because I think they inherently know sometimes that if they take this risk, that it makes them a target sometimes. And to be able to help your teen navigate that, right? Like there are times where you stand up for something and other people will want to tear you down, but is it something worth standing up for? And can you get other people to kind of stand up for you too? And again, going back to what the article was saying is when teens come together, they can make a big difference and you can make standing up for something cool. You can. And um, the op-ed piece we're talking about is in the New York Times two days ago. But um, I think it's very difficult in life to stand alone yes. and stand up for something. And sometimes teens can do it. You know, sometimes adults can do it. It's very difficult. It's easier to stand strong with other people, be yeah. they adults or teenagers. Yeah. And uh, I think maybe starting standing up for things together is important. And then that really helps people, I think, learn to stand alone and to voice uh, themselves and their identity separately. But it's a hard thing to do if you have not learned how to do it alone, you right. know, or do it with other people, excuse me, yes. Right, yeah. and I think it's also about, you know, for the people that are able to stand alone, I believe that often comes from people who have been able to have experiences of healthy risk-taking. For people who see taking that risk as a positive, even though there may be negative effects, right? Even though other people may not like what you're doing. A lot of times that comes up with um, standing up for something that you believe in that's outside of yourself. People are often able to stand up when it's not just about them, but when it's about something bigger, 
-hmm. We do see, too, uh, with Hillary, you know, Clinton, that there was a learning curve in the risk-taking and that she learned from being first lady and she learned from being senator of New York and she learned especially from the problems she faced as secretary of state. Um, and we learn and we gain more skills and we can take on more risk. And we are then willing to stand alone in a way that uh, teenagers, I think, struggle with. It's hard to do that. It really is. Um, I'm trying to think of one of the younger people in the public arena who's engaged in risk-taking. And there's a whole question this week, too, of Snowden. Mm-hmm. And uh, he certainly took risk in a, an online arena, arena and how that worked out for him. And there's been both positive and negative feedback to that. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's been very difficult for him. You know, he's living currently, as we know, in Russia. And, right. you know, there are struggles around this uh, whole area, you know, about how a young person engages in risk and what they face. And a lot of the teens I work with look at Snowden and, you know, it says to them, it's kind of a scary thing. I, I don't know if I'd want to end up in that situation if I do something on my own. I don't know what you think about that, Jennifer, but it's interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I think along those lines, too, I think teens are paying attention. And so that's a perfect example, though, of some a discussion that a parent could have with their teen. What do you think about Edward Snowden and what's going on there? What comes up for me is kind of the flip side of that is a teen like Malala, right? Mm-hmm. And how powerful everything that she did was and how that's an example of looking at a teen and the choices she made and standing up for herself as well as other people. And it's been such a positive route for her. And I think teens see that and say, wow, I could make an impact like that. Right. And Malala is a very interesting and admirable young woman. Um, you know, really coming out of the valley, Squat Valley and in Pakistan and, you know, very much, I think, uh, being supported by her family. Her father really supported her. He was a school teacher and he supported her to make changes and to stand up. And that's an example, I think, where a father or parent sees down the road for a kid and they see the potential for positive risk taking and her dad talked about that really seeing that kind of thing but then there's the risk there that she suffered the consequences of that terrible shooting and you see what can happen if you do stand up but uh, you know she's resolute in her choice to have done that to really have stood and stood for important things for young people and I think to highlight that In some ways, she does that on her own, and she does that with the support of an adult, and that that's what it can be. You know, teens can take their risks and yet know that there is that supportive foundation from which they can grow. Yes, I agree with you, Jennifer. And I think it brings up, you know, to go back to Snowden for a few minutes, um, I think there was not that same supportive frame there. And, uh, you know, he wanted on some level to do some good things. But I think without a supportive frame, without the careful assessment, risk-taking has some negative consequences, and we really see that. And, you know, I think it's a very interesting subject to talk about with our young people because they have to see the full range, really, here, that it's not just good and bad, that it's a complex part of and very important part of life. Yeah. And I think it's also an arena that parents are somewhat more comfortable in talking about rather than jumping right into conversations about sex and like sexual conversations and how to have that. You can start by opening dialogue with your teen or even with your young kids about how do you take risk? How do you assess risk? And so one, you're helping them because you're building this framework of risk but you're also helping them learn how to have dialogues. And that can carry on into being able to talk about more taboo, more sensitive issues like sex and sexuality. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I I really think that risk-taking is a a tool to understand sexuality. You know, it's a tool to understand teen life, but it's very important in the sexual arena. And it's an easier way I think, an easier entry for parents to have more intimate conversations with young people 
you know, because risk is in many ways, it's tough, but it's easier to talk about than Mm -hmm. some of the sexual specifics, which are, I think, very, very hard for parents to talk with kids about because of the taboo that's been set up with young people and parents talking about sexuality. Right. And so, you know, I think part of what we're trying to do is help parents and teens learn how to have these conversations. And sometimes it's doing that thinking ahead and recognizing, okay, well, if I start here, that's going to help down the line. Well, I think we've uh, talked this out a bit today and it's uh, really interesting. And I, I think you and I can think about it. There's a lot more to talk about with this area in the future, you know, some of the the areas we've talked about of specific risk-taking, how it connects directly with sexuality, which we might talk about in a later podcast, you know, but uh, again, I've really enjoyed our conversation today, Jen. Yeah, thank you so much, Lynn. This has been really fun. Take care. This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcasts at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art, and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers.